Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is John 21, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. So he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread And he gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest. The rest of us are seated. My name is Daniel Long. I am a pastor here at Grace. And this morning, this Sunday, we're actually finishing our series, our summer series called Seven Psalms, Seven Signs, in which we've been looking at the Psalms one week and then the other week looking at the Seven Signs in John. And we have a special guest with us this morning to finish off the series, and that is Ryan Bestelmeyer. Now, he's shaking his head because he doesn't like attention, but you preach. So, um, well, so Ryan, if, so some of you know who he is, others don't. Um, so Ryan was on staff, and he and I were on staff together. We actually went to seminary together. We shared, I think, the worst class both of us took at seminary. Um, but four years ago, God actually called him to plant a church in Albuquerque. It's called Hope Church. Um, and over these last four years, or just over four years, God has been faithful and generous um, to to grow that church and to be working through Ryan. And so we got him here to preach because um, one of my favorite things when I was on staff uh, with Ryan was to hear him preach. 
And, and, I, and you will, in a minute, know why. Because I think if there's one thing he might do more effectively than preaching, it's cook a good meal. And if you've ever tasted his food but not heard him preach, you're in for a treat. But one of the things about Ryan that I love and why I'm so grateful that he's here with us this morning is because he lives a life that is extremely compelling and one in which when I would see him live before God was extremely just challenging. Like I wanted um, to really follow Ryan's example in that. So Ryan, thank you for being here with us and for sharing with us from God's Word. Thank you, Daniel. It's so good to be with you all. Um, before I begin, I just want to uh, express some of my gratitude. It's been a little over four years since I was up on the stage saying goodbye and um, never felt like I was able to say thank you. And it's taken me actually some time to even realize why. That is, after you, as the years go by, you start looking back and you learn more about yourself and see how you've been shaped by the people and the places that you were a part of for so many years. I was a part of this church for 14 years, uh, the first uh, six as a college student and young adult, and then uh, eight as a pastor. And uh, I, I came to know Jesus when I was a freshman in high school, but it was here where I learned the depth and breadth of the gospel. And I learned that week after week after week from this pulpit here, out in the college ministry room, we used to meet in what is now, what is Seca, and then we got booted out, and I'm still a little bitter about that, um, but <laughs> to make room for a coffee shop. And, uh, <laughs> and so I just want to say thank you. Probably even more significantly than from this pulpit or the college ministry room, I learned the breadth and the depth of the gospel around the dinner tables and on the front porches and on the living room sofas of so many of you. And so thank you. If you don't know me, which I assume is a pretty big portion of you all, uh, thank you as well. I'm just in that kind of mood. And uh, so I, I love the church. I really do. I love the church. I think that's why I planted one and I plan on planting more. And I love the church. Now, she's a mess. Don't get me wrong. Amen? Then again, so am I. So I guess that makes us a good match. I love the church. And this community is the reason why. Would you join me in prayer as we ask God to speak to us this morning? God, we ask this morning that regardless of how we're feeling, whether we're feeling desperate and hungry and thirsty for you, or whether we come in satiated and satisfied and full, not knowing that we even need anything from you, we confess together that we cannot possibly live on just physical stuff alone. We can't just live on this morning's breakfast on bread alone, but we desperately need every word that proceeds from your mouth. So would you nourish us this morning? Beyond just nourishing us, would you take your word, would you plant it deep in our hearts and our minds and imaginations and make it bear fruit so that we might be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I have a question for you this morning. Who, this little audience participation, who here likes to sit next to strangers on airplanes and talk to them? Anybody? Okay, who dreads it? Okay, and then the rest of you are like, I said I'd come to church this morning, didn't say I'd raise my hand. That's cool. 
So I actually dread it. I dread sitting next to strangers on airplanes. Sometimes I'm in the fortunate situation where it's clear from the person's body language they have no intention in engaging in conversation. Their headphones are in. They're nose deep in the Sky Mall magazine or whatever. And I take that as God's gentle mercy upon me. Other times I'm not so fortunate. I don't necessarily dread talking to them or listening to them. I've met actually some fascinating people on airplanes before. What I dread is that inevitable moment when they ask what I do for a living. I mean, I've thought before of just making something up. I'm an architect. I don't know. No, I, I usually tell the truth, but then I have to watch their reaction. And sometimes it's okay. It's not too bad. Other times I can see their visible discomfort. I can detect on their faces the slow realization coming over them of their cosmic misfortune. That of all the people who could have chosen to take a seat next to them on Southwest Flight 1376, it had to be a pastor, it had to be me. And I wish I could lean over and say in those moments when I sensed their displeasure in my very existence, I wish I could say, hey, just so you know, I don't like pastors either. They're a bunch of freaks. It's true. I don't actually like pastors. I have some, of course, dear friends who are pastors here at Grace and also many back in Albuquerque where I'm a pastor. But I assure you, my, my friendship with them is in spite of them being a pastors. It's certainly not because they're pastors. And I know what you're thinking. He's got issues. And you're right, I do. This is my call for help. You can only imagine now how much I look forward to pastor conferences. If you're a pastor and you go to pastor conferences, you walk around and meet people, and within seconds of an introduction, you're finding out how large the other, person's the other pastor's congregation is, and you didn't even ask. You had no intention of asking. You were planning on leaving that conversation, assuming their congregation was minuscule and their pastorate an abject failure. Instead, now you're hearing about all their successes, all their ministry fruitfulness, and no doubt they give all glory to God. That's part of the game. So is rounding up. It's called pastor math. You take your largest attendance ever, you round up by 20%. <laughs> and it wouldn't be so bad, I suppose, if it, at least occasionally one pastor, would, when, when one pastor asked another, how's your church doing, someone would just dare say terrible. But that never happens. Instead, pastors, myself included, have this irresistible desire to share their resumes with each other. Resumes that, of course, have been scrubbed and cleaned and look much more glowing than they actually are. But let's stop picking on pastors. What about you? What about in your vocation? Can you relate? As a business owner? Uh, as a doctor or nurse, as a teacher, as a student, as a parent, as a disciple? Like, how's your resume? H how's your career going? Uh, as you thought it should? As you dreamed it always would? H how are your finances? How are your kids? How's your marriage? How are your past relationships? How's your discipleship to Jesus going? Now, I'm not assuming that you'd answer any of those questions negatively. Maybe things are going great. That's wonderful. But then this morning's message isn't for everyone. It's just for a few of you. It's not for the successful, for the wise, 
for the gifted, for the accomplished, for the fruitful. This morning's message is really just for a select few. It's for the failures in the room. You know who you are. And if you're not one of those, perhaps you can listen to this message this morning on behalf of someone else, you know, for a friend. (laughs) And of course, if this is your first time in a church, you're probably thinking, this is exactly why people don't like pastors, and you're probably right. (laughs) You're in a series called Seven Psalms, Seven Signs, and I didn't know until I spoke to Will Rogan that there were seven signs in the Gospel of John. But then as I was looking into it, I found out that although most scholars agree there are seven signs, seven miracles that point to the identity and purpose and mission of Jesus, no one actually agrees what those seven signs are, or at least which one the seventh is. I literally couldn't find two commentators who agree. That is a good thing and a bad thing, I suppose. It's a good thing because that means I can talk about whatever I want, and I've decided to do just that. It's a bad thing because what we're looking at this morning might not actually be John's seventh sign, and you might have to extend this series a week longer. I am so sorry, Daniel. He's shaking his head no. Find it on your own, all right? Open your Bible if you have one to John 21. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath your seats on page 907. John 21, page 907. We're going to read through this together, again, even though you heard Rick read it earlier. Just to set the context here, Jesus has uh, risen from the dead. He's appeared to the group of disciples twice. This is their third encounter and one of their last, verse 1 of chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Why were they fishing? Because they were hungry? Maybe. But they're fishing at night, you'll notice, presumably so they have fresh fish to sell at the morning market. You know, a few years earlier, Jesus had given these fishermen a new vocation. He, he told them they were going to be fishing for people. They were going to be part, they were going to be leaders in a people-gathering movement that Jesus was starting. And then after Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20, they heard an affirmation of that call when Jesus said to them, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And yet, here they are back at their old jobs. Now, there's nothing wrong with fishing. There's nothing wrong with earning a living. It's just odd that Jesus had given them a new vocation, but now they're back to their old one. Now, to their credit, maybe it wasn't so clear-cut to begin with. Maybe they were like other early Christian leaders, supposed to work for a living and lead the Jesus movement at the same time. Who knows? All we know from the text is that they spent all night out on the boat and caught nothing. These are experienced fishermen doing what they know how to do, but not a single fish was caught. Most of my recent experiences fishing have been with Steve Gross. Steve, where are you? Uh, Steve's one of the elders here. And whenever we go fishing, not a single fish is ever caught. We're terrible. There's now this ongoing joke about whether we can call it fishing if we never get fish. It's really just casting and reeling. (laughs) But can you imagine the disappointment and exhaustion? Can you imagine laboring all night at your craft, at your job, 
to put food on the table for your family, and by morning time, you have absolutely nothing to show for it. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. I've heard that fishermen love it when you go up to them and point out they haven't caught any fish after hours in the water. I've also heard they like being called children. (laughs) They don't know it's Jesus, right? It's just somebody on the shore a hundred yards away. Verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So why did they listen to this stranger's voice? That's one question I have. Calling them children and pointing out they spent all night fishing for naught. I mean, I think I would have said, mind your own business, right? You don't think we tried at some point the right side of the boat? But maybe there was something oddly familiar. Maybe there was just something about that voice that when you heard it, you wanted to obey. You wanted to listen. Well, upon casting their nets to the right side, a a school of fish swarmed the net. It's at this moment that one of the men in the boat finally recognizes Jesus. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Notice that phrase, for he was stripped for work. The NRSV translation, which is the Bible I normally preach from, more literally translates this, for he was naked. He was either naked or in his underwear. I don't know if we have any fishermen in the room. Jesse Cromer, are you here? What what do you normally... You know what? Don't answer that question, actually. (laughs) He was either naked or just stripped for work. But what's odd is that he then puts on clothes before jumping into the water and swimming a hundred yards. I mean, this doesn't appear to be a pre-planned, well-calculated course of action on Peter's part. It's, It's a bit impulsive. He realizes Jesus is on the beach. He looks at what he's wearing or not wearing. He throws on a robe, jumps in the water, and just starts swimming. I love that. I love the uncalculated response. He just wants to be near Jesus. Good sense be damned, right? Here, there's all this work to do in hauling the fish up on the boat, but you know what? Other people can do it, or or it can wait. I just need to be near Jesus. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Jesus, you'll notice in this section, already has fish and bread, but he tells the disciples to bring their fish over anyways. And I think, you know, isn't it kind of him to say, bring some of the fish you have just caught? That's a very generous description by Jesus of the disciples' relationship to the fishing hall. But here we have a breakfast with seven of the disciples plus Jesus. Jesus has prepared the meal, and Jesus, you'll notice, is the one feeding them. 
Now, we're actually going to move on and actually look at the next section shortly, but I just want to make the very simple point from this passage that Jesus serves breakfast to failures. It's not in the middle of their success as they skillfully ply their trade that Jesus shows up, right? I have no doubt Jesus loves to show up in the midst of our successes. That's not where he shows up in this story. It's not in the middle of a prayer meeting, right? Filled with fervency and earnestness and dedication. I I have no doubt Jesus loves to show up at prayer meetings, but that's not where he shows up in this story, right? It's not in the middle of a Bible study where disciples are gathered around studying God's word with great attention to detail. I have no doubt Jesus loves to show up at our Bible studies, but that's not where he shows up in this story. It's not even in the middle of a worship service with heartfelt singing and and hands raised and amens coming from the crowd. I have no doubt Jesus loves to show up at worship services, but that's not where he shows up in this story. In this story, Jesus shows up right in the middle of failure. In the middle of failed work. In the middle of a time when the disciples had worked all night long and had absolutely nothing to show for it. Could your failure, again, you know who you are, Could your failure in whatever vocation God has called you into, inside the home or outside the home, could your failure be the context in which Jesus wants to show up? Could your failure be a context for communion with God? Jesus wants it so. He wants to meet you in that place. And not only does he want to meet you in that place... He wants to talk to you and maybe even give you advice. And you know what else? He wants you to be fruitful. He he wants your net to be full. Right? He wants your net to be full. Now, I can't guarantee that in the midst of failure, Jesus is going to meet you, tell you how to do your job more successfully like he does the disciples. And you just wait. Your net is going to be so filled with fish, you won't be able to haul it in. I can't guarantee that Jesus, in other words, will turn your failure into a success. Other preachers can, I can't. But do you see his heart? (laughs) Do you see his heart? Do you see that he cares? That he wants the disciples, his children, to be successful in their labor. He takes no pleasure in their failure. I mean, those of you who are parents know that one of the hardest things to watch is the failure of your kids, right? I mean, sometimes you can give them good advice, how to keep their eye on the ball and and maintain a level swing, how to remember those difficult words on the spelling bee list, and sometimes that helps, sometimes it doesn't. I wish I could keep my kids from failure, even when I know in the back of my mind some failure will do them good. But it pains me to see their work come to nothing. And if that's true of me, and frankly, I'm not that good of a father, how much more true is that of Jesus who calls the disciples his kids? Do you see his heart and his desire to be with them in their failure? Well, failure at work is only half the background to the interaction between Jesus and the disciples. The other half is a failure of a much more significant kind. And Jesus will tease this out in his interaction with Peter. Let's look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. When you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this was said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. The failure of Peter went far beyond his work as a fisherman. A few weeks before this interaction, before Jesus was crucified, Jesus had told the disciples they would all desert him. They would all fail him. And Peter was the one who said, never, even if all these would desert you. He said, I will not. I would lay down my life for you, he said. In other words, look, Jesus, I don't know about their level of commitment. You might be right, but I assure you, mine is much greater than these. My devotion is exceptional, is what he was saying. And then shortly after, while Jesus was standing trial, Peter was outside in the courtyard around a charcoal fire, and three times he was asked a question about his relationship to Jesus, and he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. And the last time, he even began to curse himself, swearing, I do not know this man you're talking about. And then the rooster crowed, and then he broke down and wept. Surely, his life's greatest failure. Now, Peter has seen the resurrected Jesus twice since the rooster crowed, but no personal interactions are noted. And I wonder what he felt on those occasions. Joy, I'm sure, right, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Did he feel anything else, though? I mean, can you think of a time when you failed someone, someone close to you, and you know they know? What's it like the first time you see them afterwards? You're not sure how to act, right? I mean, are you supposed to bring it up? Or is it best just to move on and pretend it never happened? Well, mercifully, Jesus speaks first, and it says in the text, that he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, that's not a terribly odd question for one friend to ask another. Maybe Jesus is feeling a little insecure about his friendships and just wants a little affirmation. Don't we all? But it is odd that he said, do you love me more than than these, right? Like, why would Jesus be asking about Peter's devotion in comparison to the rest of the disciples? Well, he responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. But then Jesus asks again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Okay, that's weird. Maybe Jesus is feeling insecure, and he's also hard of hearing. Whatever. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Okay, then, tend my sheep. But then Jesus asks a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I I wonder if in that moment, if Peter then thought back to the strange ending of the first question. Do you love me more than these? In other words, is your devotion exceptional? 
I, I wonder if in that moment, if he glanced, Peter glanced at the charcoal fire and remembered the previous charcoal fire, when not once, not twice, but three consecutive times, he was asked about his relationship to Jesus, and he denied even knowing him. We, of course, don't know all that was going on in Peter's mind at this moment, but the text says that Peter was grieved. Lord, you know everything. He does, doesn't he? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you, Peter says. Okay, then, feed my sheep. And he goes on from there and essentially tells Peter, you will, in fact, lay down your life for me one day. Essentially, you'll get a do-over. And this time, you'll succeed. Well, there's three things I want to say about this interaction. I'll try to say them fairly quickly. The first is this, that Jesus cuts. Jesus cuts. Jesus is most certainly the great physician... But let's be clear about what kind of physician he is. <laughs> He's a surgeon. He is a surgeon, and a surgeon wields a scalpel. And the first thing a surgeon must do if he's going to deal with the problem and bring healing is that he has to make that first cut. He has to cut you. Jesus can't pretend this issue, this failure, this tumor, if you will, is not a part of Peter. It is. And maybe Peter wants to pretend it's not there, but Jesus can't and Jesus won't. And in order to get to the tumor, he has to make the initial incision. So Jesus initiates the conversation, you'll notice. And he very methodically leads Peter back to the night where it all went wrong. He brings Peter over to another charcoal fire. He asks a seemingly innocent question with a strange ending. Do you love me more than these? And then he asks it a second time and then a third time. And the third time it hurts. It hurts because Peter can't escape his past. No one can escape their pasts. No matter how far you run, no matter how well you hide, no matter how much energy you put into starting over, you cannot escape your past. You cannot escape your past failures. You know why? Because your past lives inside you. It's a part of you. You can run, but you just take it with you. It is deep underneath layers and layers of tissue. You can't escape it. The only way it can be dealt with is to come underneath the hands of a surgeon. And he has to make that initial cut. And it's going to hurt. Jesus has to bring you back to that moment, to that night, in order to heal you. Now, of course, if all the surgeon does is just make the first incision, you'd be in a lot of trouble. The second thing the surgeon does is he gets down to the root issue to go deep enough to extract the problem. So second, Jesus gets to the root of the issue. What specifically was Peter's failure, if you know the story? It was twofold, right? It was, it was dishonesty and it was cowardice. Dishonesty because he told Jesus one thing, and then he did another. Dishonesty because he lied about his relationship to Jesus. But also cowardice. Cowardice because he should have stuck by his friend's side in that moment when everyone else left. But did you notice that in the questions Jesus asked Peter, he didn't specifically ask him about his dishonesty and cowardice. He didn't say, Simon, son of John, will you tell the truth from now on? Simon, son of John, will, will you be brave from now on? No, what does he say? Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me? The root issue that Jesus addresses is, is Peter's love. You see, you have to go deeper than dishonesty and cowardice. Why was Peter dishonest? Why was Peter a coward? It's not that Peter on that night, by the way, had no affection for Jesus, had no love for him at all. It's that in that moment, he just loved his own self-preservation more. At the root of sin, at the root of moral failure, is what you might call disordered loves. There are lots of good things to desire, good things to love, and and our own self-preservation is one of them. I mean, that's one of the earliest things that parents teach their kids. To love their lives enough to not stick a fork into an electrical socket, right? To not hide in the oven as a hiding place. To not run out into the street to get a better look at the oncoming cars. Parents teach their kids to love their own self-preservation. There's nothing wrong with loving or desiring self-preservation. There's nothing wrong with desiring sexual fulfillment, sexual adventure even. There's nothing wrong with desiring material stuff. There's nothing wrong with loving the admiration of others, with loving the kindness of a co-worker, the affection of a neighbor. The problem, of course, is when those desires or those loves get disordered such that the things we ought to love more, namely God, end up further down the list. That's the root of moral failure. It's disordered love. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Dishonesty and cowardice are the symptoms, Peter. Your disordered love is the disease. You have to let Jesus, the surgeon, go deeper to address the issue of your heart. Okay, so you were unfaithful. Why? What was going on deeper in your heart? So so you did something unethical at work. Why? What was the underlying issue? The surgeon goes deep enough to address the root cause so that real healing can occur. So Jesus cuts. Jesus gets to the root of the issue. Third and finally, Jesus is eager to move on. We haven't even talked yet about the response of Jesus to Peter's threefold affirmation of his love. What, is, what does Jesus actually say? How does he respond to Peter's affirmation? He says, feed my lambs, right? Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Sometimes interpreters try to parse out the difference between those commands. I, I take them as synonymous with each other. Just as Jesus has been the good shepherd, caring for and providing for the flock, so Peter now is to do the same. What's interesting to me, though, about this interaction is that Jesus doesn't first deal with the night in question, deal with Peter's failure, make sure he's all healed and rehabilitated and ready to go, and then recommission him. He recommissions him for his future work at the very moment he addresses his failure. Did you catch that? Jesus recommissions Peter for his future work at the very moment he addresses Peter's failure. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that is not how we operate, is it? I mean, when someone hurts us or fails us, we might forgive, but that doesn't mean we're going to trust them right away. That doesn't mean we're going to just move forward with plans as usual, and I don't even think we necessarily should. I just want to point out the graciousness of Jesus, how eager he is to move on. He doesn't even have to say, Peter, I forgive you. Instead, he says, all right, Peter, let's go. I've got a job for you. Why doesn't he have to say, Peter, I forgive you? Perhaps it had something to do with with what occurred between Peter's failure and Peter's recommissioning. 
between the two charcoal fires. You see, Jesus didn't have to say, Peter, I forgive you in this moment, because we already had. He already had absorbed in his own body on the cross Peter's failure, my failure, your failure, our sin, past and present and future. And as his blood flowed from his head and his hands and his feet, the love of God was being poured out on us, is being poured out on us. Even as we're on this operating table of sorts, we receive this life-giving transfusion of divine blood. And this life-giving transfusion of divine blood, doesn't just end with us on the operating table, healed and sewn up. God is eager to get us back out there and get us back in the game. Let me say just something that I think at least a few of you need to hear this morning, and it's this. Your failure does not derail or disqualify you from God's plan for your life. Your failure does not derail or disqualify you from God's plan for your life. It didn't derail God's plan for Peter's life. It didn't derail God's plan for the disciples' lives. God is eager to give us new chances. He's eager to help us not not escape our past, that's impossible, but to heal our past so that when in our mind's eye we are taken back to that moment of failure and we see not just the action but the underlying disease, the disordered love, we also then see in that moment, in our mind's eye, the overwhelming and overcoming and overpowering love for us in Christ Jesus, healing us and binding us and strengthening us, and recommissioning us. So get back out there, Grace Church. Get back in the game. Thanks be to God.